Last week we covered the first 20 verses, which was probably way too many, of chapter 12 of Exodus, in a passage that I might have given the title, The Gospel According to Moses. We considered two primary themes surrounding the institution of the Passover, uh, which I might divide into number one, justification, and number two, sanctification. We are justified by the shedding of the blood of the Lamb. We are sanctified by feeding on the Lamb day by day. The three great gospel themes I wanted, to, wanted us to keep in mind throughout were, number one, the universality of condemnation, which is a teaching unique to Christianity. Men are born sinners, and they need atonement. Number two, the sacrifice of the lamb is a substitutionary sacrifice. Men deserve death, but Christ took our place that we might live. And then finally, number three, the blood must be applied to be efficacious unto salvation. By faith, men everywhere must believe the gospel and apply the blood of the Lamb of God, who is our Passover, says Paul, to the doorposts and lintel of our hearts to receive the gift of eternal life. Once this takes place, the Christian believer must abide in Christ, living with intentionality and purity as we seek to live a life pleasing to the Father by the power of the resurrection of the Son, applied by the Holy Spirit of God, as we live in such a way that we are ready to go home at any moment to be in Christ's presence forever, and having this hope purifies the child of God. I've titled today's message, Deliverance Begun. And we're going to read Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 21, and we're going to read through verse 39. And I'm sure once again it's too much, but we'll have another microwave sermon today. Didn't know where else to stop this message. But if you would join me, Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 21. This is the word of God. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? That you shall say, It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. 
and all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he, all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides children. A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there's so much in this passage that that we can't possibly begin to carefully look at all of it. But I ask that as we partake in the reading of your word, that by your spirit you would open our eyes and hearts to the great truths found here. And as we spend the next little while here uh, looking at your word together as a family, that uh, we would be encouraged and lifted up and that we would be um, drawn into uh, worship in the way that you have laid out for us and provided for us in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. With the exception of a few details, which we will try to touch on this morning, verses 21 through 28 cover much of the same ground we covered last week. Last week, the text covered the Passover instructions. Today, the text covers the fulfillment or the application of those instructions. So in the first three verses, 21 through 23, Moses instructs the elders. The first deal, detail I would like to consider comes up right away in verse 21 with Moses' first words to the people. The New King James, which we just read, translates these words, pick out in reference to the lamb. The King James has a much more accurate rendering of draw out. This may not seem like a very important detail, and perhaps I'm making too much of it, but I believe in my heart that every word of Scripture is inspired, and so I didn't want to skip over this once I became aware of it. Moses could have said, pick out, but he used a different word. He used a word that meant draw out. And this difference in wording suggests to me that the head of the house didn't just go into the field and grab whichever lamb looked like it might serve. Rather, the lamb is drawn out, called, or beckoned to. In this way, there was a voluntary aspect in the lamb's choosing, just as Christ, before and during his incarnation, volunteered of his own free will to be our Passover. 
You can make of that as you will, but the principle remains. Christ wasn't forced or coerced into being a sacrifice or even chosen as one among many, as some religions would have you believe. Out of his great love for us, Jesus volunteered to take our place, receiving in himself the wrath of God and the death you and I deserved. He was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So Moses here calls for the elders. The elders were expected to lead the way. Moses instructed them to observe the Passover and to instruct those represented to observe the Passover. Just as the Father chose Christ to be the apostle, according to Hebrews 1, and Christ chose others to be his apostles, to spread the gospel everywhere, Moses chose the elders to spread the Passover message to all Israel. Moses instructs the elders to draw out the Passover, the lamb, and slay it, which was to be done on the 14th day of the month. Recall that this is prior to the priesthood being established in the Levitical line, and prior to the Israelites moving into the land of Canaan, and prior to the temple being built at Jerusalem. The Passover was killed by the heads of the families in their own houses. Afterwards, the people of Israel centered the Passover around temple worship, where the lamb was killed only by the priests at Jerusalem in the temple there. This change was expressly laid out by God in the first eight verses of Deuteronomy 16. You're welcome to look at that uh, when you get a chance. But with the destruction of the temple in the year 70, God was explicitly telling Israel that the Passover had been perfected, completed in Jesus Christ. Unbelieving Jews, led by certain Pharisees and other religious leaders, have tried to preserve the Passover since that time, but it has become somewhat of an empty celebration. There's no lamb, there's no altar, there's no priesthood, there's no temple. In essence, it has become a bloodless sacrifice. Not so in the beginning. The blood of the lamb was received into a basin, Moses tells us today, and not spilled on the ground, showing the preciousness of the blood of Christ. And then the lamb was to be entirely consumed, either by the household or by the flames, if there was any remaining. Moses also mentions again, we talked about this last week a little bit, the use of hyssop. Hyssop was used to apply the blood to the doorposts and the lintel. And throughout the scriptures, hyssop was used to apply water and blood for cleansing. In Leviticus 14, for example, the ceremony for the cleansing of a leper used hyssop to apply the blood of a bird. In Numbers 19, hyssop was tossed into the fire during the sacrificial burning of a red heifer for the purpose of purification. In Numbers 19, again, a little further down, hyssop was used to apply purification water for those who had touched a dead body. Why God chose this particular plant, I don't know. But he does make it abundantly clear that the use of hyssop is tied to healing, to cleansing, and to purification, all of which are elements 
of atonement in Christ. Moses mentions that the Lord looked for the blood. There's a lot to be, lot to be considered there. The blood sacrifice was the basis for sparing people from judgment. The detail Moses adds in today's text is that the people were not to be outside in the streets during Passover, but they were to remain in safety behind the doors of the homes on which the blood was applied and the lamb eaten. Another detail that we see for the first time in today's text is the mention of the destroyer or the destroying angel in verse 23, who seems to be tasked with inflicting the judgment of the death of the firstborn by God. Now, to be fair, there are translators that prefer the translation which says the destruction rather than the destroyer, including Young in his literal translation. But we do have precedent from other scriptures to support the idea of a destroying angel. In 1 Corinthians 10.10, Paul mentions that some of the Israelites were destroyed by the destroyer in the wilderness during the time of their wandering. Another example, a really powerful one, found in 2 Kings 19 and verse 35, the angel of the Lord goes forth and strikes down 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army at night, sparing Jerusalem from siege or attack. The key to remember, of course, for all of these, including our story today, is that the Lord is in control. To all the powers of heaven, if the Lord says, go, they go. No less today than in the days of Moses. I hope you find comfort in that. Now, the destroying angel knew an Israelite from an Egyptian, even if he did find him in the street. But this was to be the ordinance of protection to them, to abide in their houses, marked with the blood of the Passover lamb. Their safety was in their being under the blood, just as the safety of believers today lies in being justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is owing to the blood of Christ alone that the Christian believer is saved from the wrath to come. Pastor Jay Parker wrote the following words commenting on this passage. There is among the Hebrews a legend of two sisters who that night had with the rest of their household gone into their dwellings. One of them stood all ready to depart and began quietly eating her portion of the roast body of the lamb, a type of the soul feeding on Christ, her mind at perfect peace and rest. The other was walking about the dwelling full of terrible fear, lest the destroying angel should penetrate therein. This one reproached her sister for being so careless and confident and finally asked her how it was that she could be so full of assurance when the angel of death and judgment was abroad in the land. The reply was, why, sister, the blood has been sprinkled, and we have God's word that when he sees the blood, he will pass over us. Now, I have no right to doubt God's word. I believe he will keep 
his word. If I were in doubt about the blood having been shed, or if I doubted either the integrity or ability of God in connection with his word, I should be uneasy. But as I do not question the fact that the blood has been shed, and I do not question the fact that the that God's word is true, I cannot but be at peace. They were both equally safe, but one was at peace, while the other was not. Or, as we should say now, one had assurance, and the other was full of doubts. But if the doubting one had believed what God said, she could not have been in distress. It is even so now. Those believers who make the finished work of Christ the ground for their hope and are resting simply and sincerely on his word are at peace, while those who are trying to find peace in themselves, in their frames and in their feelings, are never at rest. It is the blood of Jesus that makes us safe. It is the word of God concerning blood that makes us sure. Long quote, but I thought it was worth giving. For these Israelites in Exodus 12, rescue from the angel of death didn't happen by a prayer or a fasting or a good work. It was accomplished by a life given on behalf of others. That brings us into verse 24. The Passover endures forever, in case you weren't aware, is a long time. Now, to be sure, this Hebrew word forever is not exactly easy to translate, probably simply because it's a concept that we have difficulty wrapping our minds around. But regardless, forever is a long time. God says, this shall be an ordinance to you and your sons forever. The Passover is not taking place properly today, not in any way that is recognizable anyway. I don't want to dwell on this issue for too long, but let's just read a verse from a little further along in Exodus for the sake of the context of this word forever. In Exodus chapter 21, verses 5 and 6, God is giving instructions to his people regarding the role of servants and masters, particularly for a servant that wants to remain with his master even after his term of service is fulfilled. So let's read those couple verses, Exodus 21, verses 5 and 6. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. That's significant. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. And, and he shall serve him forever. It is obvious in this case that forever means until the life of the servant is complete. So it's not like God's plan for Passover was thwarted. Rather, it was perfected. And that in the death of Christ. More importantly, the observance of Passover was not only for those who would leave Egypt, but also for their children 
and all the generations to follow. Passover was the greatest work of redemption performed on the Old Testament side of the cross. In the same way, Jesus gave the new Passover, saying that his work on the cross was not only for that generation, but should be remembered generation after generation through communion, where we partake of the body and blood of Christ with fellow believers. There's something special about celebrating communion as instructed by Christ. I clearly recall each of my three children asking me about the purpose and the meaning of communion when they were very small, and it was a wonderful opportunity to tell them about Christ, as they had at that point reached an age of some degree of curiosity and understanding. I think this is the exact principle God fleshed out there in verses 24 through 27 of our text, as he encourages the message of the Passover to be continued through families forever. We see again the theme, which we find in Genesis through Revelation, of judgment redemption. When God struck the Egyptians and delivered the Israelites, there was once again a twofold work, a theme found from the beginning of the Bible to its very end. First, an enemy was judged and defeated. Second, God's people were set free and given a new identity and a new life. I want to say this as reverentially as possible, but it is almost as if God is desperate to point to every reader that it is about Christ, so that we would recognize his death and resurrection as the work of God. Many early Jews missed the message because they wanted Messiah to ride in on a white horse, setting the Jews free through power alone. But God had repeated his pattern for thousands of years. There is no redemption without judgment. What a day of painful joy it will be when God opens the eyes of Israel to see the truth of Jesus. And when he does, the people will do what the Israelites of old did in verses 27 and 28 of our text. They will bow their heads and worship, and then they will move forward in obedience to his commands. Bringing us to verse 29, God slays the firstborn. And it's here we come to the moment foretold by God to Moses back at the burning bush. The warnings were over, and they will always end. And judgment is falling on Pharaoh in Egypt, as they always will. All the firstborn were going to die. It didn't matter who they were. From the lowest prisoner to Pharaoh and even the animals, if they were not under the blood, death came into the house. Pharaoh didn't pay more because he was wealthy. The prisoner didn't pay less because he was poor. The cost for pride, rebellion, and disobedience was death. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? 
Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I can't think of anything. Egypt awakes then at night. At midnight, something was wrong. There was an increasing restlessness, an unsettling atmosphere, growing into a wailing that could not be ignored. The judgment of God and the the judgment that he had promised had come to pass. And there was no false repentance or bargaining or empty promise that would change what had just happened. Meanwhile, Israel, those under the blood of the Lamb, rested in security and undisturbed peace. Israel had cried to the Lord for years seeking deliverance. It was Egypt's turn to cry. Pharaoh would not give God his firstborn, Israel, so God took all the firstborn of Egypt. Finally, Pharaoh knew that the Lord God was greater than all the Egyptian gods put together and was greater than Pharaoh himself. What is the response of Pharaoh in Egypt, beginning in verse 31? There was no more room for pride. Grief had stripped it all away, as it often will, at least for a time. Pharaoh had been exposed with all his tricks and lies. And he tells them, get out. Remember when God told Moses that Pharaoh would drive the Hebrews out of Egypt? Israel wouldn't simply be released but they would be driven out of the land. God promised this to Moses all the way back in chapter 6. Verse 31 of today's text is the fulfillment of that promise. Moses must nearly have wept for joy when he received the message from Pharaoh to get out. With a strong hand, Pharaoh will let them go. With a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. This was unimaginable just a short time before. Pharaoh, at the end of this passage, asks for blessing. I don't know what you make of this particular response by Pharaoh. I'll tell you what I make of it. Um, I think I'm in the huge minority opinion in this particular case, but many commentators think that this shows that Pharaoh's heart had been humbled I can't help but think it only shows how pride had saturated his whole being. After everything Pharaoh had said and done, after all the cruelty, all the lies, all the broken promises, all the false repentance, Pharaoh still has the gall to say to Moses, bless me also. There is no record of Moses blessing Pharaoh in any way, shape, or form. And the Egyptians urged the people out as well. The Egyptian people also agreed that the Israelites must go to the extent that they essentially paid the Israelites to leave. The text gives us the sense that the Egyptians were afraid of what else might happen if the people of Israel didn't leave right away. After all the plagues Egypt endured, now every household was faced with the death of a family member, or at least, or likely more than one, 
And in verse 33, we read, And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said, and this is important, We shall all be dead. Therefore, the children of Israel left in a hurry, so quickly that there was no time to add leaven to the bread and let it rise. This was why they had to eat unleavened bread as the Lord had commanded. Get to our last few verses here. The children of Israel now leave Egypt. This is the moment they had been waiting for. This is the moment that gives the book of Exodus its name. I'm sure there was some unease in leaving behind everything they had known for their whole lives. There is a certain security that comes with a life with which we are accustomed. accustomed. But I am also sure that there was comfort in knowing that they were acting in obedience to God. To the Hebrews, the joy of freedom, even in the wilderness, would far outweigh the familiarity of slavery, regardless of how accustomed they had become to it. And so it is true with the believer who places his or her faith in Christ. There is a familiarity and a comfort with our old life that may seem difficult to let go of at times. But before us lays freedom in Christ and abundant life. But, you might rightfully say, weren't the Israelites faced with challenges, like being trapped by the Red Sea and then 40 years of wandering in the wilderness? And I would say yes. God did not deliver Israel to bring them directly into the promised land, but first into the wilderness. And this is so important. For now, I will just have to ask you to stay tuned because we will get to all of that in due time, Lord willing. The scripture says that they traveled from Ramses to Succoth. We know very little about either of these two places in terms of modern archaeology. For that reason, some Bible scholars estimate these two places were about 130 miles apart. Others say they were about eight miles apart. So take your pick. We simply don't know with any degree of certainty. And honestly, for today's purposes, I don't think it matters too much. What we do know is Succoth, their first destination, means shelters, tents, booths. So it may very well have received its name that night as the Hebrews set up camp in that area. It certainly cannot be the same Succoth mentioned in Genesis 33, where Jacob set up tents for his cattle when he fled from Esau because it's on the other side of the Jordan River. It's a common Hebrew word, and it's used here again. But again, one thing is certain. The Hebrews left their houses in Egypt, which were built to last through many years, and gave them up to dwell in tents or booths, which were temporary and were designed to be moved quickly and easily. For the, for the Christian, this world is no longer our home. We may have placed down roots and expected at one time to stay, but when the call of God drew us out of that old life, we recognized that 
we actually dwell in tents and are awaiting our eternal home. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul goes on to say that we should expect to experience a certain amount of discomfort. He uses the words, we groan, because we recognize that this body, this world, is not our final aim. It's not where we ultimately belong. And so Paul reminds us a few verses later in verse 9, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. How many people left Egypt? The Bible doesn't tell us how many people in total left Egypt. Only the adult men are mentioned by number, and even that number is debated a bit. The Hebrew word for thousand can also be company or clan, as it's used as a military word, um, equivalent to something like a... Um, a century, right? A centurion led a century, but it was not made of a hundred people, um, but it's the same number, essentially. But regardless of that, um, even though we read that 600,000 men left, it may mean 600 companies of men or 600 clans or whatever of men. We're not entirely <laughs> sure. And besides these men, however many, there were women and children, and I think that there were elderly folks as well that wouldn't have been counted. Estimates range as high as a total of three million people exited Egypt that night. What we know from scripture is that even after the 40 years of wilderness wanderings, with all the births and deaths that happened there, there had to be a significant number of Israelites that entered Canaan to conquer the land as the Lord commanded them to push north. Perhaps more applicable to us is the fact that Moses mentions that there is a mixed multitude that left. Not all of the people who left were Israelites. In a certain sense, we need to recognize that there are two different strains of thought taking place when we consider this mixed multitude. Firstly, there's the fact of what happened and that is that non-Israelite individuals joined the Exodus out of Egypt for whatever reason. The Bible doesn't tell us. Maybe they were also slaves in Egypt from some other country. Maybe they were Egyptians that had been completely ruined by the series of plagues and saw no hope in staying. Maybe they had seen the power of Jehovah, God of Israel, and chose to set aside their old gods and worship him. We are we're simply not told. But the fact remains that there were these individuals that joined the Israelites as they journeyed out of Egypt. Secondly, there is the lesson or the application we can glean or at least try to glean from this fact. God had not expressly forbidden others from joining the Israelites as they left Egypt. They could choose for themselves. Certainly, there were at least a few who saw the power of Jehovah and believed in him. But this mixed multitude would be a snare 
to Israel before very long. In the next book of Moses, Numbers, chapter 11, Moses records the following in verses 4 through 6. Now, the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Look carefully at their words. Because they weren't gratifying their physical cravings, they believed that their whole being was being dried up. To them, the physical body was everything. Christian, beware. Whatever it is that comes with you when you are released from the bondage of sin, whatever accompanies you into your new life will be a snare to you trying to drag you back into slavery, reminding you of the pleasures of sin, however fleeting, and forgetting the suffering and the bondage and the death. You may think you are being noble and even gracious by not cutting yourself off entirely from your old life, but the truth of the matter is, that you are only setting yourself up for bitter failure. In my life, however short or long you may consider it to be, I have never seen a single exception to this rule. That which we try to drag into the Christian life from the world, from our old life, will be a snare to us every single time. No exception. Reality is slightly more subtle than that because we have personalities and other things we carry in. Let's say debt. <laughs> but the unchanging principle remains, settled forever in heaven. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have closed with the words of Christ, so powerful. The words that he gave to us through his servant, Paul. And we are so grateful that you have made these main things so clear. These primary things are so clear, right from what we've read in Exodus to the instruction we've been given in the New Testament. Father, help us not to neglect the clarity of these words or to try to talk them away or think them away, but to embrace them as truth. Thank you for this short time in your word this morning because your word is truth. 
And as Christians, we are a people that ought to be desiring to be fed by the truth of your word. Lies we can get anytime, but truth we get from your word. Help us to remember this, to be saturated in your word, to spend time with Christ, feeding on the Lamb, that we might become more and more like him, moment by moment. Thank you for each person here. Pray that your spirit will touch the hearts and minds of each one because it is your word, that because it is your spirit, because it is your Passover. All these things we pray in the name of our Passover, Jesus Christ. Amen.